When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for yet another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, one of the cornerstones of our botanical method aquarium practice is the use of substrate, specifically substrate materials which can influence or make it easier to influence water chemistry in the aquarium, as well as to help foster a microbiome of small organisms, which will provide ecological diversity for the system. Now, substrates, in my humble opinion, are one of the most oft-overlooked components of the aquarium. And think about it. Most of us, we just tend to just add a bag of, you know, whatever to our tanks and move on to the more exciting stuff like the rocks or the designer wood or plants or whatever. It's true. Other than the planted aquarium enthusiasts, the vast majority of hobbyists seem to have little more than a passing interest in creating and managing a specialized substrate or an associated ecology in the substrate. And that's a real pity, especially for those of us who are interested in botanical method aquariums, which replicate natural aquatic habitats, where soils and geology play a huge role in influencing the environmental parameters of these ecosystems. And in the hobby, we've largely overlooked the benefits and possibilities which specialized substrates can offer to even non-planted aquariums. So... Several years back, I started to experiment with materials to recreate some of the characteristics of wild aquatic habitats, which fascinated me. And of course, an obsession was born. I started playing with substrates mainly because I couldn't find exactly what I was looking for on the market. And this is not some indictment of the major, you know, substrate manufacturers out there. I love almost all of them and happily recommend ones that I like and I use them. I'm obsessed with substrates. I, I, I think that the companies which produce them are among the coolest of the cool aquatic industry brands. I really do. If I wasn't doing this botanical thing with Tannin, I think I would have started a company that does nothing but substrates for aquariums. Seriously, I still might do it. I don't know. And the fact is, the major manufacturers have market realities that I don't. They need to market products that more than, I don't know, eight people are interested in. It's unreasonable to think that they devote precious resources and R&D to creating a product that would be geared towards such a tiny target. And of course, being one of those eight people who are geeked out about weird substrates, I decided that I'd scratch my own itch, as we did with the botanical thing, and formulate and create some of my own. And that's how our nature-based product line was born. I realized that the specialized world that we operate in embraces some different ideas, some unusual aesthetics, and is fascinated by the whole function of the environments that we strive to replicate in our aquariums. And these, you know, they're important distinctions between what we're doing with substrates at Tannin and what the rest of the aquarium hobby is doing. Our nature-based line, and I, this is not going to be an infomercial for the nature-based thing, but I, I want to talk about substrates and this is a logical segue. But our nature-based line is not intended to supersede or completely replace the more commonly available products out there as your you know, standard go-to aquarium substrate because uh, A, it, they're a lot more expensive. You know, they're hand-mixed from you know, very carefully sourced ingredients. They're not cheap. 
Uh, B, they're not specifically aesthetic enhancements. And C, they're not intended to be planted aquarium substrates. And D, because of their composition, they're going to add some turbidity and some tint to the aquarium water, at least initially. And not everybody can handle that, especially the turbidity part. So right there, those factors have significantly segmented our target market. I mean, we're not trying to be the world's standard substrate. They weren't formatted or formulated to grow aquatic plants. We're not marketing them just for the cool looks. And we can't emphasize enough that they'll make your water a little bit turbid when they're first submerged. If you have fishes with dig or which like to work the substrate, you may see a near continuous turbidity in your aquarium, which I think is cool. But, you know, most of you are going to be like, mm, oh, joy, right? So these factors alone will take us out of contention for large segments of the aquarium hobby market anyway. And that's important to grasp. I mean, these substrates are intended to be used in more natural, botanical-style, more biotope-inspired aquariums. And our first two releases, Igapo and Varzea, were specific to the creation of a type of cyclical terrestrial aquatic feature, the Varzea or the Agapo, which we flooded for us that we've talked about ad nauseum over the years here. They do exactly what I wanted them to do, and they were specifically intended for use in specialized setups like our urban agapo idea that we've been talking about forever, as well as in brackish water mangrove environments and a few others as we're developing more. But let's just touch on that aesthetic part for a second. Now, most of our nature-based substrates have significant percentages of clays and other sediments in their formulations, and these materials have been typically something that aquarists have avoided because they'll cloud the water for a while, and they often impart, impart a little bit of color. Now, we also have some botanical components in a few of our substrates because they're intended to be terrestrial substrates for a while before being, you know, flooded. And when this stuff is first wetted, some of it might float. And that means you're going to be either netting this stuff out or letting your filter take it out or just waiting for it to settle. And you're simply not going to have that issue with your typical bag of aquarium sand. I'm like, shit, right now you're probably just frothing now, right? Just waiting to cloud and dirty up your tanks with this stuff, I'll bet, right? No? Eh, I can't for the life of me figure out why not. Now, really, uh, remember, some of these substrates were formulated for the very specific purpose, to replicate the terrestrial soils which are seasonally inundated in the wild. And as such, these materials simply won't look like or act like your typical aquarium substrate materials. Have I scared you off completely yet? I probably haven't. Maybe I have? I don't know. We'll see. Now, why do we include things like subs you know, sediments and clays in our mixes? Well, for one thing, sediments are an integral part of the natural substrates and the habitats from which our fishes come from. So they're integral to our line. In fact, I suppose you'd best classify nature-based products as sedimented substrates. Think about this. Many of our favorite uh, aquatic habitats are forest floors and meadows, which undergo periodic flooding cycles in like the Amazon or places like that, which results in the creation of aquatic habitats for, you know, a huge diversity of fish species. But depending on the type of water that flows in from the surrounding rivers, the characteristics of the flooded area can vary. So another important, you know, another important uh, impact is the geology of the substrates over which rivers and streams pass. This results in differences in the physical and chemical properties of the water. We've talked about this many times before. In the Amazon, for example, areas flooded by rivers of black or clear waters with acidic pH and a low sediment load, in addition to being nutritionally poor, are known as igapo. The flooding often lasts for several weeks or even several months, and the plants and the trees need special biochemical adaptations to be able to survive the lack of oxygen around their roots. We've talked about this a lot over the years, and it's really an interesting science that we've just started to look at in the aquarium world, really. 
Now, forest floor soils in tropical areas are known by soil geologists as oxisols, and they have a varying amount of clay, sediments, and minerals like quartz and silica, and various types of organic matter. So it makes sense that when they're flooded, these ingredients will have significant impact on the aquatic environment. This recipe is not only compositionally different than the typical off-the-shelf aquarium sands and substrates, it looks and functions differently too. You don't rinse them before use. Now, you, you can wet these things right away. You, you, you don't have to do a wet-dry season agapo-style tank with them. However, again, you should be ready for some cloudy water for like a week or more. And again, if you have fishes which like to work the substrate, it'll be a near-constant thing. The degree to which will be based on the habits of the fishes that you keep. You know, geophagus, probably not the best candidate if you want clear water and a sedimented substrate. And that's where a lot of people will metaphorically, you know, leave the room and check out. You know, turbid, darker water is a guaranteed freak out for a super high percentage of aquarists. I get it. So yeah, you'll have to make a mental shift like you do with everything that we talk about here to appreciate a different look and function. And many hobbyists simply can't handle that. I've been extremely upfront with this stuff since I introduced these substrates uh, and the idea of these substrates to ward off the, you know, I added nature base to my tank and it looks like a cloudy mess, the stuff is shit kind of emails that invariably come when people don't read before they purchase stuff. And trust me, the fact that you're even reading this blog or listening to this podcast puts you in the tiniest minority of aquarium hobbyists. A lot of people just don't read. So again, let's talk about how to live with these types of substrates. There's a lot of different ways to use, you know, these sedimented substrates in all sorts of tanks. I mean, if you want some of the benefits and want to geek out and experiment with them, you can use a, a sand cap or whatever conventional substrate you prefer on top and likely limit the turbidity somewhat, much like the, you know, the practice of aquarists who employ, you know, dirted substrates do. It's a similar thing. Um, oh, in what while we're on talking about plants, dirted substrates, we get asked a lot if these types of substrates, or at least the substrates that we, you know, market and manufacture and market here, if they can grow aquatic plants. Now, although they were intended to facilitate the growth of terrestrial plants, like grasses, the fact is both our customers and ourselves have seen pretty damn good aquatic plant growth in tanks using this stuff. Our Igapo and Varzea substrates mimic sandy, acidic soils that have a low nutrient content. And as you know, the color and the acidity of the flood water is due to the acidic, organic, humic substances, and tannins, and stuff that dissolves into it. The acidity from the water translates into acidic soils, which kind of makes sense. Now, I admit I'm not a geologist, and I'm not an expert on soil science. There's a lot to that stuff. I... I'm a hobbyist with a weird interest in this stuff. I know enough to realize that in order to replicate the types of habitats that I'm fascinated with, it required that I use different materials. If you ask me, will you know, this fish do well with these materials? Or can I grow you know, cryptocarine in this? Or does this make a good substrate for shroom tanks? I likely won't have a perfect answer for you. I'm sorry, because there's so many things we can experiment with. Now, people ask a lot also, especially plant people, ask me about the cation ion exchange capacity of our substrate. Cation, it's, I don't know, is it pronounced cation or cation? I, boy, I've always called it cation, but I'm probably totally wrong. Cation exchange capacity. Anyway, it's known as CEC. It's the ability of a material to absorb a positively charged nutrient ion. So this means that the substrate will hold nutrients and make them more available for the plant roots and therefore plant growth. So CEC measures the amount of nutrients, more specifically, positively charged ions, which a substrate can hold onto or store for future use by aquatic plants. Does that make sense to you? I hope so. Thus, a high CEC is very important to many aquatic plant enthusiasts in their work. And 
While it means that the substrate will hold nutrients and make them available for the plant roots, it doesn't indicate the amount of nutrients or that the substrate contains. So for reference, scientists measure CEC in milliequivalents per 100 grams. Uh, to get really down and dirty to analyze these substrates, you know, scientifically, CEC determinations are often done by a process called method 9081A of the EPA SW846. What the fuck that means, I don't know. <laughs> but CEC extractions are often also analyzed in ICP OES systems, which I am familiar with from my Reefacrim days and very expensive units. Um, and it's a rather difficult, pretty expensive process with equipment and methods that are just something, you know, casual hobbyists can't really easily replicate. Now, as you might suspect, CEC varies widely among all kinds of materials. Sand, for instance, has a CEC less than one milliequivalent per 100 grams. Uh, clays tend to be over 30 milliequivalents per 100 grams. And stuff like zeolites are around 100 milliequivalents per 100 grams. Soils and humus may have CEC up to 250 milliequivalents per 100 grams. That's pretty serious stuff. What nutrients are we talking about here? Well, the most common ones which come into play in the context of CEC are things like iron, potassium, calcium, magnesium, stuff like that. So if you're into aquatic plants, high CEC is a really good thing. Of course, this is where the questions arise around the substrates that we play with. It makes sense, right? I mean, it does. They do contain materials like clays and silts, which could arguably can be considered higher CEC materials because they're really fine and because higher surface area generally results in a higher CEC. The more surface area there is, the more potential bonding sites there are for the exchange to take place. And alas, nothing's ever exactly what we hope it should be in this hobby, and clays are often not all that high in their CEC you know, ratings. Now again, the nature-based substrates are what we like to call sedimented substrates because they're not just sand or pellets of fired clays, etc., etc. They're a mix of materials, and they do have some terrestrial soil in the mix too, which is also likely higher in CEC. And no, we haven't done CEC testing with our substrates. It's likely that you know, in the future, some enthusiastic and curious scientist hobbyist might just do that, of course, which is, it's just cool, you know. I, I would like to see people experimenting in all sorts of ways, and maybe they'll tell us that there's not a very high CEC, and that would be even more confusing, but whatever. So I guess this is promising. However, again, I, for the final time, because you're probably sick of hearing me say it, I'm going to emphasize that these were created to replicate the substrate materials found in the Agapo and the Varzea habitats of South America and the overall habitat, more holistically conceived, not specifically for plant growth. And in terrestrial environments like the seasonally inundated Agapo and Varzea, nutrients are often lost to volatilization, leaching, erosion, and runoff. So a lot going on there. And it's important for me to make it clear again that these substrates are more representative of a terrestrial soil. Interestingly, the decomposition of detritus and leaves and such in our botanical style or botanical method, excuse me, I'm still calling it style, our botanical method aquariums and our, you know, urban agapo uh, displays is likely an even larger source of stored nutrients than the CEC of the substrate itself. Uh, thus, they'll provide home for some beneficial bacteria, breaking down organics and helping to make them more available for plant growth. Perhaps that's why aquatic plants grow so well in botanical method aquariums because all this stuff is made available. Again, I'm spitballing here. Yeah, the stuff does grow aquatic and riparian plants and grasses quite well in our experience. Yet again, I would not refer to them as aquatic plant substrates. They're not being released to challenge or replace the, you know, big brands out there that make amazing aquatic soil. They're not even intended to be compared to them, but that's what happens. People do. 
Remember, they're intended to start out life as terrestrial materials being gradually inundated as we bring on the wet season. And because of the clay in the sediment, sediment of these substrates, the water gets cloudy and turbid, just like in nature. And that's not going to excite a planet aquarium lover for sure. I can't stress it often enough. With our emphasis on the holistic application of our substrates, our focus is on the big picture of these closed aquatic ecosystems. And again, the long-winded, tortured argument that I've been going on and on about, I'll be the first to tell you that while I've experimented with many species of plants and inverts and fishes with these substrates, I can't tell you that every single fish or plant or shrimp or whatever will like them. You're going to have to experiment. That's part of the fun. Well, shit, that's not something that you typically hear an aquarium hobby brand tell you to do with their products every day, right? Like, I'm not going to make all the sorts of generalized statements about how everything, you know, that I think these products can do and it's amazing and blah, blah, blah. That would be unhelpful. I'd rather focus on how they perform in the types of systems in which they were intended to work in and what the possible downsides could be, which I think we've touched on immensely. The whole point here is that these substrates are perfect for a range of applications. They're not the greatest substrates ever made or anything like that, but they're super useful for replicating the soils of some of our favorite aquatic habitats and for doing some of those geeky you know, experiments that we love so much. So that pretty much covers the whole sedimented substrate thing for now. I think that was like my magnum opus on that. And let's talk a little bit about the term alternative substrates for a bit and the what I used to say, you know, the dangers that people saw with them. Now, in my experience and in the reported experience from hundreds of aquarists who play with botanical materials breaking down in and on their aquarium substrates, undetectable nitrate and phosphate levels are typical for this type of system. They're not unusual at all. When they're combined with good overall husbandry, these uh, substrates make for incredibly stable systems. And I've been thinking through further refinements of the old idea of a deep bed of botanicals, deep botanical bed substrate relationship, that kind of thing. I've been spending a lot of time researching natural aquatic ecosystems and contemplating how we can translate some of that stuff into our closed system aquaria. It's, it's a really interesting subject. Now, I realize when contemplating really deep aggregations of substrate materials in the aquarium that we're dealing with closed systems and that the dynamics which affect them are way different than those in nature, for the most part anyway. And I realized that experimenting with these unusual approaches to substrates requires not only a sense of adventure, a direction, and some discipline, but a willingness to accept and deal with an entirely different aesthetic than what we know and love. And this also includes pushing into areas which might make us uncomfortable, not just for the way they look, but for what we're told might be the possible risks. Now, one of the things which many hobbyists ponder when we contemplate creating deep layers of botanical heavy substrates and consisting of you know leaves and sand and botanicals and stuff like that is the possible buildup of hydrogen sulfide co2 and other undesirable compounds within the substrate itself well it does make sense if you have large amounts of decomposing material in an aquarium that some of these compounds are going to accumulate in heavily active substrates now the big boogeyman that we all seem to zero in on in the sum of all fair scenarios that we have is hydrogen sulfide which results from bacterial breakdown of organic matter in the total absence of oxygen. So let's think about this boogeyman for just a second. In a botanical bed filled with materials placed on or in the top layers of the substrate or whatever, or loosely mixed into the layers, will it really pack down enough to the point where there is a complete lack of oxygen and we just develop a huge amount of this reviled compound in our tanks? I just don't think so. I've never experienced it. I think that we're more likely to see some oxygen in this layer of materials, and I can't help but speculate, yeah, it is just speculation, that actual denitrification, nitrate reduction, which lowers nitrates while producing free nitrogen, might actually be able to occur in a 
deeper bed of botanicals. Now, again, could these hydrogen sulfide pockets accumulate? Sure, there's probably places where it could happen under a piece of wood or a rock or something where maybe it's compacted. But your whole bed going anaerobic, I, I just haven't seen it in decades of playing with this stuff. I just haven't. And it's certainly possible to have denitrification without dangerous hydrogen sulfide levels. As long as even a very small amounts of oxygen and nitrates can penetrate into the substrate, this will not become an issue for most systems. Again, I personally have yet to see a botanical method aquarium where the materials become so compacted as to appear to have no circulation whatsoever within the botanical layer. Now, sure, again, I'm not a scientist and I base this on observation and the management visual inspection of numerous aquariums that I've done over the years, you know, and ones that I've seen and as well as the basic chemical tests I've run on my systems under a variety of circumstances. As one who's made it a point to keep my botanical method aquariums in operation for very extended time frames, I think this is really significant. The bad side effects that everybody talks about should manifest over these longer time frames, and they just haven't. They just have not. And then there's that question of nitrate again. Now, although not the terror that ammonia and nitrite and hydrogen sulfide are known to be, nitrate accumulation is something that a lot of hobbyists are concerned with. As nitrate accumulates, fish will eventually suffer some health issues. So ideally, we try to keep nitrate levels no higher than 5 to 10 parts per million in our aquariums. As a reef aquarist, I was always of the, you know, keep it as close to zero as possible mindset until I realized that the corals that I was working with just grew better with the presence of some nitrate. And this was really evident in my large-scale coral grow-out raceways during my, you know, wholesaling days back when we, uh, I had a facility where we grew coral. It, when we had nitrate, coral looked a hell of a lot better than when everything was spotlessly zero and sterile. It seems that, you know, zero nitrate is not always the most realistic or even achievable goal in a heavily botanical-laden aquarium, although I routinely see undetectable nitrate readings in my tanks. You have a bit more wiggle room, in my opinion, however, before concern over fish health is a factor. Now, when you start creeping towards 50 parts per million, you're getting closer to a number that should alert you. It's not a big stretch from 50 parts per million to the potentially more detrimental readings of, you know, 75 parts per million and higher. And then you get towards the range where fish health issues could manifest themselves in your fishes. Now, many fishes won't show any symptoms of nitrate poisoning until the nitrate level reaches 100 parts per million or more. That's practically like fertilizer, you know? However, studies have shown that long-term exposure to moderate concentrations of nitrate stresses fishes, which makes them more susceptible to diseases, affecting their growth rates, and in, you know, inhibiting spawning in a lot of species. It makes sense. And those really high nitrate levels um, can become problematic. Fishes will become noticeably lethargic, and they may have other you know, health issues that are obvious upon visual inspection, like open sores or reddish patches on their skin. And then you have those mysterious deaths and sudden death, you know, essentially from shock of newly added fishes to the aquarium because they're not acclimated to the higher nitrate concentrations. Okay, that's the scary stuff. It's stuff, you know, you hear about in the urban legends or the guy on the internet or whatever. But the reality is many of us, many of us will never have this issue or even hear about it. However, high nitrate concentrations are not only manageable, they're something that's completely avoidable in our aquariums. Quite honestly, even in the most heavily botanical-laden systems I've played with, I've personally never seen a higher nitrate reading than around 5 parts per million. Often, as I just mentioned, they're undetectable on hobbyist-level test kits, and I attribute this to common-sense stuff. You know, good quality source water, you know, reverse osmosis, deionized, whatever, a careful stocking, careful feeding, good circulation, not you know disturbing the substrate, 
and consistent basic aquarium husbandry practices, you know, water exchanges, uh, filter maintenance, etc. stuff like that, stuff that, you know, is common sense. Now, again, that's just me. I'm no scientist, certainly not a chemist, but I have a basic understanding of maintaining a healthy nitrogen cycle in my aquarium. You got to read up on this stuff. It's interesting. And I'm habitual, perhaps even obsessive about consistent maintenance. Water exchanges are not a, you know, when I get around to it thing in my aquarium management, you know, playbook. They're baked into my practice. It's what I do. So yeah, although nitrate is something to be aware of in the botanical method aquariums, it's simply not an ominous cloud hanging over our, our success. It just hasn't been. Relatively shallow sand or, you know, botanical substrate beds seem to be optimal for denitrification. De- and many of us employ them you know, for the aesthetics. Now, how do you maintain this? Well, a light stirring of the top layer, if you're concerned about any potential dead spots or whatever, is something that's permissible in my opinion. Any debris that you stir up can easily be removed mechanically by filtration or you can just scoop it out with a net or whatever. But that's it. I wouldn't go crazy trying to keep my sand bed or my botanical bed sterile and, you know, devoid of anything. Of course, as we've already discussed, you don't have to go crazy siphoning the shit, literally, out of your sand bed every single week, which essentially decimates the populations of all the beneficial microscopic infauna or interferes with their functions in the process. You wouldn't want to do that. What I'm starting to feel more and more confident about is postulating that some form of denitrification occurs in a system with a layer of leaves and botanicals as a major component of the tank. Now, again, I know I have little, you know, rigorous scientific information to back up my theory other than anecdotal observations and even some assumptions. However, there's always an example to look at, nature. Of course, nature and aquariums differ. One's a closed system and the other is completely open. However, they're both beholden to the same laws, aren't they? And I believe that the function of the captive leaf litter bed and the wild litter beds are remarkably similar to a great extent. The thing that fascinates me is that in nature, leaf litter beds perform a similar function, that is, fostering biodiversity, exporting nutrients, and, yeah, denitrification. So let's take a look at some information that I gleaned from my study of natural leaf litter beds for some insights. So let me pull this out. Okay, so in a a slow-flowing wild Amazonian stream with a very deep leaf litter bed, observations were made which might be interesting to you. First off, oxygen saturation was 6.7% milligrams per liter, which is about 85% of saturation. And conductivity was 13.8 microsemians, not too bad. And pH was 3.5. Whoa, that's acidic, right? Now, some of these parameters, especially the low pH, are likely difficult to obtain and even maintain in the aquarium if you could. But the interesting thing is that these parameters were stable throughout a month-long investigation in the natural habitat. Oxygen saturation was surprisingly low given that there was some water movement and turbulence when the study was conducted. The researchers postulated that the reduction in oxygen saturation presumably reflects respiratory consumption by organisms that were residing in the leaf litter. It's interesting, right? As well as, of course, low photosynthetic generation, which makes sense because there's no real algae or plant growth in the litter beds, right? And of course, such numbers are consistent with the presence of a lot of life in litter beds. And of course, when they did microscopic investigation, it confirmed that the leaf litter was indeed heavily populated with fungi and other microfauna. There was also a significant amount of fish life present, of course. Interestingly, the fish population was largely found in the top 12 inches or 30 centimeters of the leaf litter bed, which was estimated to be about 18 inches or 45 centimeters deep. And the food web that they developed in this type of habitat 
uh, was comprised largely of fungal and bacterial growth, which occurs in the decomposing leaf litter. We've talked about that stuff a lot, haven't we? Okay, throwing a lot of information out there and doing what I hope is a slightly better than mediocre attempt at trying to tie it all together to my big picture idea here. The principal assertions I'm making are that in the wild, the leaf litter bed is a very productive place and has a significant impact on its aquatic surroundings. And that it's increasingly obvious to me that many of the same functions that occur in our aquarium using leaf litter beds as they do in the wild. It's really cool stuff. So enriching, as we say, a substrate with botanicals or composing in a substrate entirely of botanicals and leaves is a very interesting and compelling subject for investigation by hobbyists. So three, you know, potential areas of investigation for us would be, you know, use of botanicals and leaves to comprise a bed for bacterial growth and denitrification. That would be really interesting. Uh, it would be important for us to understand the chemical and physical impact of the botanical bed on an aquarium, you know, conductivity, pH, that kind of stuff. And three, utilizing a botanical bed to create a supplemental food source for the resident fishes. Now, that's an experiment that I've played with before and I've shared that with you over the years. And I believe it's entirely possible to construct some elements of a food web in our aquariums using botanicals or leaf litter. We've also touched on the idea of a leaf litter botanical bed as a nursery for fry, something more and more hobbyists and breeders are confirming is a logical go-to thing for them. Interesting semi-anecdotal observations from my friends in the know suggest that the biofilms from decaying leaves form a valuable secondary food for the fry of fishes like discus, waro, you know, after they're done feeding with the parent slime coat, um, loricarid catfishes, kerosens, all, all kinds of stuff. And I've seen juvenile fishes of a variety of species just sort of appear from my botanical-rich aquariums, you know, over years and, you know, in a juvenile phase. And they're happy and healthy and fat and apparently deriving some nutrition from the fungi, bacteria, and the small crustaceans which live in, on, and among the leaf litter bed where they were hiding for the first few months of their lives. My own experience with creating leaf litter bed focused aquariums has, you know, proven to me that supplemental food production for the resident fishes is a thing and that we need to consider it. It's a valid and really exciting approach to creating a functional closed aquatic ecosystem. We talk about the concept of substrate enhancement or enrichment a lot in the context of aquatic, uh, you know, botanical experimentation. Again, we're not talking about the enrichment in the same context as, say, planted aquarium guys with materials put into the substrate specifically for the benefit of plants. However, the addition of botanical and other materials can create a sort of organic mulch, which benefits many aquatic plants, interestingly enough. But rather, the enrichment in our context refers to the addition of botanical materials for creating a more natural-appearing, natural-functioning substrate, one which provides a haven for microbial life as well as for small crustaceans, biofilms, and even algae to serve as a foraging area for our fishes and our invertebrates. We found over the years, uh, you know, playing with all this stuff, that substrates can be a really dynamic place and benefit from the addition of leaves and other materials. For many years, substrates and aquariums were really just sands and gravels. And with the popularity of planted aquariums, new materials like soils and mineral additives sort of entered into the fray, and that's been cool. With the botanical method aquarium starting to gain in popularity, now you're seeing all sorts of materials added on and in the substrate for different reasons, of course. But I think the big takeaway is that we shouldn't be afraid to experiment with the idea of mixing you know, various botanical materials into our substrates, particularly if we continue to embrace solid aquarium husbandry practices. There's really little to worry about. In my opinion, richer botanically enhanced substrate provides greater biological diversity and, yeah, stability for the closed system aquarium. 
is it for everyone? It's not for those not willing to experiment and be diligent about monitoring and maintaining water quality. It's not for those who are superficially interested or just in it for the unique aesthetics that it affords. However, for those of you who are adventurous, experimental, diligent, and otherwise engaged with managing and observing your aquariums, I think it offers amazing possibilities. Not only will you gain some fascinating you know, insights and benefits of an onboard nutrient export and environmental enrichment system, you'll also get the aesthetics of a more natural-looking substrate as well. Like so many things we do in our little niche, the weird alternative and botanical and rich substrate approaches are fascinating, they're dynamic, and they're potentially groundbreaking for the aquarium hobby. So for the adventurous, the diligent, and the observant, they present numerous opportunities to learn, explore, and create amazing function-first aquatic ecosystems right in your own living room. It's like, who's in? <laughs> stay creative, stay observant, stay diligent, stay thoughtful, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tin and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.